Ever feel that you're the only one truly battling with a balancing act of high demands of business or a stressful corporate position and then at the same time trying to stay healthy and strong? Relatable stories of real people living in a real world can encourage all of us to stay the course. I call it a radical center of human thriving amongst the ever pressures of modernity. This episode is special because it's with two men I admire and respect, Mike Sharman and Mike Stoffforth. They share their struggles, their successes, and their wisdom regarding health and wellness in a crazy world. This episode is for you if you want to learn and laugh about the road of optimal health. Both Mikes are wizards of the digital world and masters of telling the stories that connect brands and companies with people. But both have been on unique and powerful personal, professional and health journeys. That's what we dive in today. Mike Sharman specializes in helping B2B and B2C digital social media posts go viral. He's the co-founder of Retroviral Digital Communications and Retroactive Digital and the author of the best-selling book Brandalism. Mike Stopforth is the founder of consulting firm Beyond Binary, co-founder of social media crisis consultancy 48 Hours, a keynote speaker and a podcast host. Join us as we explore Sharman's journey from standard gymming to a functional movement mindset, how three key changes of perspective are helping Stopforth, a coachee of mine, transform his health and life. The power of partnering with yourself and loving yourself by asking, would I do this to someone I love? the trappings of the entrepreneurial grind and why both mics needed moments of suffering to see the changes their bodies and minds were begging them to make how each mic deals with or even leverages stress in the ever-shifting modern world and why stress is not the same as anxiety my three big takeaways from the show number one one of the best ways to deal with the stresses of this crazy life is a consistent physical routine The type of physical exercise, number two, should primarily and ideally be something you enjoy. Of course, there are going to be parts you don't enjoy. Stretching is my weakness, but an absolute necessity to my physical health. And number three, get a community of people to help you, to surround you, to help you when you're tired, exhausted or discouraged with regards to your physical health. Please send me your feedback and queries to either connectedmaytothrive.co.za or on my WhatsApp direct line 064-871-0308. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Steve Stavs, and this is The Made to Thrive Show. I've got two SA heroes, Mike Charman and Mike Stuffforth. I know Mike Stuffforth. I've worked with him. Incredible person who's changed his life, transformed his life, both his health, physical and mental health. We're going to get into that. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Let's start off with you, Mike Sharman. Tell us about your book and tell us what you've been doing because you looks like a bit of a creative genius and uh, you're getting a lot of traction with this book. I think you're marketing it in an incredible way. There's some good testimonies already about it. So... Tell us about the book and you know what it took to you know produce something like this. Straight into the flex, eh? Straight into the self plug. Um, yeah, so I think that um, you know for me, COVID's re- a really interesting time for a lot of people. I think that if you look at the rise and fall and the decimation of traditional businesses, and um, even prior to COVID, I went on this journey because I was fascinated by the whole concept of brandalism. So brandalism is like an anti-advertising movement, and it kind of correlates with the way in which we've run Retroviral since 2010, where we really are the challenger brand for challenger brands. And for me, you know, the interesting insight early on in the research process was just around the fact that the average S&P 500 company is less than 20 years old. It's 18 years old, right? And if you look at that as the time of history in which we occupy, is never been a time where businesses have kind of peaked and then collapsed in shorter periods of time. And this wasn't even necessarily uh, as a result of COVID. This was prior to that. In the 70s and 80s, the average S&P 500 company was a 50, 60-year-old monolith. And it's quite fascinating how the speed at which we're moving nowadays, we can't actually keep up. We lose focus on things. We break down, we crash out. I think that's kind of the, the direction for today's conversation around wellness and, and mental health. And I think that businesses as living, breathing organisms comprise people and bricks and mortar, and sometimes not <laughs> nowadays. 
but ultimately there's scale and destruction at the fastest pace that there's ever been in, in human civilization. Is that what happened to you, scale and destruction, in terms of trying to write the book? Uh, was it easy write or <laughs> what you happened? Know, I think writing a book is one of the worst processes in the world. Like, really, people talk about MBAs being the divorce course, but uh, my wife will attest that she hates it when I write a book. Also, this one, I kind of procrastinated less and I actually focused on putting my head down and working during 2020 because of the impending doom that we was constantly being prophesized. But uh, it, it also forced me to like spend a little bit of time researching, delving deeper, and then almost taking a break and then revisiting at a certain time. So the headspace went from end of 2019, then throughout 2020, 2021, until the completion at the end of 2021. So even the headspace kind of evolved while I was writing it. So it felt like a pretty organic process. Brilliant. Tell us about your deep work. I'm not sure if you know about Cal Newport. I want to get into a little bit of him and his sort of view on the world without email. How did you structure your deep work? How did you get into your sort of writing stance? And just how did you perform? Because obviously you got to have the cognitive ability to really get good work out there. Um, for me, I really like to talk about stuff that I have personal experience with. So I like to set the scenes with general premises around things like cash flow, raising money, uh, staff, people, building culture, and the, the, the elements of manifestos over purposes. So I like to talk about premises that are universal within the entrepreneurial and business space, uh, both startup and corporate culture, but then at the same time, using analogies or story points that I was exposed to. Because the problem with so many published works is that they love to focus on the successes but you don't understand the complexities and the hardships behind the scenes and for me at least I can give a balance view hey we did this well and then it turned out x y and z hey we did this poorly and somehow we managed to navigate out of the poorly situation to a successful or at least a, a, a completion point of view and for me I'm a I'm a done is better than perfect kind of guy so uh, I'm, I don't get obsessed about the craft but rather like what's the the key kind of outtake that you want or is this going to be interesting to at least one person and if so I think that that's a that's a decent result but you're yeah, writing a book is the most narcissistic process in the world and it's terrible <laughs> but tell us about the process of writing I mean did you, do you start up exercise do you do cold plunges do you you know to get into that frame of mind in terms of writing and the creative ability of getting this stuff out what are your boundaries what did you switch off who did you say no to I think these are very important you know aspects of wellness and mental health which we're going to go into but what boundaries or sort of restrictions did you put in place to get the work out so for me I have um, a balance problem like I go like all in on certain extremes and then that ultimately creates neglect so Stopforth and I actually um, we have a mutual personal trainer uh, called Josh at Performance Purist and for me there was almost like a three-year-ago period two-year-ago period where um, my outlet for any kind of work stress is really around triathlon so um, never loved bicycles but then when I started doing triathlons I really actually started enjoying the the wind in your head through the helmet and just some time out it's a bit of spinning as well um, I've always enjoyed swimming so that's always been the part that I've that I've actually appreciated about triathlon uh, hate running terrible runner built for speed uh, built for comfort not speed and um when we, we met uh, the performance purist approach to exercise, it's more around developing strength and conditioning. And for me, I think in South Africa, uh, the strength and conditioning mindset is something that still has only scratched the surface. Like so many of us are exposed to traditional gyms, like you know the Virgin Active brands or the Planet Fitness brands. And in that space, like it's almost designed for the 90%, right? I mean, that's why when you go in there, tall guys like myself, sometimes you don't fit ergonomically into the machinery. Whereas with strength and conditioning, um, it's almost teaching you how to use your own body for functional fitness without it feeling like it is the hype of a CrossFit box. And I think that for me has been interesting because that's taught me about consistency of exercise. I put that time in my diary three or four times a week, um, coupled with like a run once a week. And for me, I had very bad COVID in June last year and that like absolutely destroyed my lungs. So by getting into this process, it's afforded me the opportunity to create boundaries with my staff, with family, and to say, this is my times in my diary every day because the diary dictates the process and then for me when I want to write like I like writing because in my business there's a lot of writing there's a lot of branded content there's social media so it becomes like a form of 
muscle growth. It's like writing muscle improvement. So the more you would write long form, the better it helps you with your client writing execution. So I think all these things kind of marry each other. You have to have the balance of the exercise because if you're mentally fit and physically fit, those two things are critical for business success. Brilliant. Let's go to Stopforth. And Stopforth, you've had a massive transformation in your health and your wellness. You've been able to put out some incredible content, worked with some incredible companies. Uh, you mentioned any, you know, person in the in the marketing, media game, social media space, Mike Stopforth, and everybody knows this man. So, you know, you've obviously produced incredible content and great success. Tell us about your routine, what's really helped you in terms of producing, you know, this creative story that is a real success in South Africa that almost everybody knows. Thank you, Steve. I think my Apex Mountain was like 2010 and I'm still riding the coattails of that. So you're very kind, but uh, it's, it's interest on, on early investment. Um, but I look at what, what Mike's done now with his second book. And as much as I love him, I also hate him because I know how terrible I am at, at achieving the same sorts of things. And my journey really has been one of, of enjoying um, relative success in Cerebra, sometimes uh, as a combination of luck and good timing and a little bit of initiative and, and being surrounded by amazing people, but then also leaving that business eventually and, and having to figure out what life meant without that as a primary focus. And I guess what I've realized is that it, at stages of our lives, for whatever reasons, we'll find ourselves distressed or dissatisfied with a sense that another reality is really possible. It's kind of within reach. Uh, you might even know what you need to do to get there, but just feel like you have absolutely no resources uh, to do so. And I think many people, and I guess in very different dimensions of their existence, identify with that. And I got increasingly frustrated with the way I felt about my situation. And, and again, uh, as a product of, I think, luck and being surrounded by really great people, have started to commit to developing tools that enable me, I think, number one, um, to work really hard at giving myself the best chance of being happy, you know, like what what does it mean to be fulfilled and what does it mean to live a whole life? And it's very easy to kind of get stuck on on um, bubblegum philosophy there, but but those are big, big questions if you really ask them at a deep level. And then the second part is, how do I use some of that uh, to be more present? Because what I, I realized was happening in my life is that in any given moment, and this is one of the reasons why I've really, I've got an unwritten book that's like two and a half years old now that I despise. I'm going to hate the manuscript because every time I open up my computer, it stares at me like a, you know, like a weird, awkward uncle. Um, not that I know what that's like. But, um, and, and what I've realized was happening was I, like I was either spending any given moment of a day lamenting some past that was no longer available to me or some decision that I didn't make or some decision that I did make or kind of romanticizing some version of my future which as I got deeper and deeper into a depressive state just seemed so far away from me that it was like impossible and then with that comes the imposter syndrome and I don't belong here and I didn't earn this and so on and so forth that you're never in a moment you're never there you're either stealing you know obsessing over the past or stealing from the future. And that was just unsustainable. And the ramifications of that was it affected my health and my sleep and my mindset and then my family and so on and so forth. And yeah, just needed to do some work and, and, uh, and by no means have done that work. I'm on a journey of understanding that better, but had to unlearn and unbelieve some pretty core things um, in order to, to start that journey. And and that's been really helpful. And like I said, like a hell of a lot of work to do. Um, but you know, the, the essence of being anxious and depressed and distressed is just feeling like you have absolutely no options. You know, you're kind of stuck in a fog, you can't see which way to go, you feel all alone, nothing really makes sense on a rational level. From going from that to sort of having the fog lifted and without any dramatic chemical interference that enabled that, that's a pretty amazing feeling. Um, and that, yeah, that's been really encouraging to, to experience, yeah. And not a lot of people know that. I, th I think because I have this background of being perceived as being relatively successful, I feel like I have to maintain that perception in all circumstances. And so I do that as, as effectively as I can. But what I realized was I was doing that chameleoning 
um, with very low resources, sort of on an empty fuel tank, you know, so yeah. But you said you had great people around you, mm. uh, Mike, which is incredible because obviously they were part of the journey. You know, wellness, we always say Made to Thrive is not a destination but a journey. Mm. Continually growing in the wellness and being present. And 47% of people either spend their time thinking about the past or they think about the future, not in the moment. Uh, obviously, you know, Shaman's now said that exercise is a key for him to be able to produce great work and be able to be mindful, his second book already. What would you say is your sort of, you know, variable or factor that's really moved the needle with regards to, to your health? So my whole life story, if it comes to exercise, diet and sleep, which are essentially that, you know, that trifecta of biological wellness, the foundation on which you build all the things has been a, I'm clearly not doing this well. I need to find out how to, how to do it better. And then I need to either diet or regulate my sleep or go to the gym, all of which I've fucking hated my whole life. Like, I, like my body's not designed to be denied things. The moment it wants, <laughs> the moment it's denied something, and it's not really my body, it's my mind, right? If my mind is denied something, it wants it so badly. It, it, it like craves it. It seeks it out, right? So I realized that the the other way of approaching that was to change the way I saw myself because it becomes increasingly difficult to make poor decisions about your health if you like yourself. I know that sounds overly simplified and really benign, but like if you kind of dig yourself, like you do your children or the partner that you love or the friends around you, like you're not going to feed them 10 cups of coffee a day, you know, like you're not going to say shitty things to them. You're not going to wake them up in the middle of the night and go stay away. Whisper words into their ears. <laughs> um, but that's exactly what I was doing to myself and increasingly so, right? So I think, and it's, again, I, I understand how facetious this can potentially sound is that just, you know, just change the way you feel about yourself. But I think that's the work that needs to be done. And then off of that cascades, I think better decision make, because then it's a, it's a pull rather than a push uh, kind of dynamic. You're not fighting your own instincts, you're partnering with them. Um, and that's been a, that's been a big shift in, in the way I, I thought about this dynamic, you know, because every time you try and do something like that and you fail and you hate yourself more, because you're like, you failed again, or you didn't go to gym, or you ate the cookie, or all the cookies. Um, and then you're immediately in a bad space again. So, so it's not behavior modification. It's actually trying to look at sort of the root modification. internal drivers, internal motivators. What's going to say, okay, you're tired. You're still going to go to gym. You're going to say no to that 10th cookie. You know, you're not going to get smashed on the weekend. You're going to have three drinks. That's one of the biggest internal drivers is, is actually loving yourself. Well, and it's not, it's not, it's not like, so I went recently from drinking on average 10 cups of coffee a day to drinking two and that wasn't because i suddenly said i should stop drinking coffee because coffee's bad for me i've always known that that amount of coffee is bad for me what shifted was i like coffee so when i drink coffee i'm going to drink it because i like it not because i have to because i'm compelled to um and i know that in caffeine on top of caffeine over and over through the day and beyond four o'clock in the afternoon it's going to have a significant impact on the quality of my sleep that was something that was starting to happen uh, um, you know at scale and then uh, then it all kind of makes sense because you're like oh, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that to somebody I care about so why would I do that to me um, and then and then it changes so is it the point of suffering that you had to start suffering and started seeing major changes that you decided to say, hang on, I better love myself in this moment and be mindful in the moment because actually my sleep's getting affected. I've got brain fog. I'm not thinking correctly. My relationships is the seed of suffering, you know, the start of change. It's sad. I think that we sometimes have to get to a point of um, severe distress before, before behavioral change becomes possible. Um, or plausible to us, but but that was certainly the case for me. I I had run out of options as as it as I as it appeared to me, um, and that's not a nice space to be in. And it's not a nice space for the people that care about you either. But and I'm downplaying how bad it was. It was bad. Um, but sometimes that's what you need to come back. I just don't think we should have to get there. I don't like think it's fair on humanity that we allow ourselves to get to that place before we we start to work. The problem is there's no real like definitive aha moment so it's like as entrepreneurs 
from the people that I engage with and having known Mike for quite a few years, it's like we are naturally obsessive. And I think that uh, even Justine Musk, Elon's first wife, she speaks about this like commonality of obsessiveness. So that's where you run into trouble because you get so obsessed about your business. Like that is your lifeblood. It's like supporting other people's lives it's looking after people who then in turn in south african situations have black tax and they have to worry about parents in the eastern cape or other parts of the country so you're like if one piece of the jenga block falls out this thing is going to ruin not my life not just my kids life but this entire like workforce of of people who i actually care about not just as numbers but as actual human beings so you get into this obsessive place where you're like chasing the money you're chasing the success you're chasing the perception of success because they all feed each other and that obsessive monster then forces you to lose all the balance on all the other things and I mean I had the experience when I was um, I turned 30 the year I turned 30 was the worst shape of my life felt so fat and lethargic but I was burning the midnight oils sinking a few red bulls you know getting up early doing 16 17 hour days you're just chasing something you're chasing this like elusive pot of gold at the end of the hypothetical rainbow and a friend of mine he actually died on uh, on an Ironman half Ironman uh, in the swim, I think he had a heart attack, and he was one of the fittest guys I knew. And like it's all these, you know, these stories that you hear, like this guy was so fit and he died on the on the treadmill in the gym, or this guy, you know, had a cardiac arrest uh, in the cradle, or whatever. And I think that that was kind of my. Uh, mirror moment where I was like shit here's a guy who's in the prime of his life he's got a young wife and expecting a baby and you know like I've also just neglected myself in my balance and then I think there's something like that 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 creates this moment where you just realize that for what it is but then actually when you step back and zoom out you're like wow I've neglected all these other things friends family health etc etc and I think yeah once you've really been unwell for that first time whether it's a burnout or whether it's a depression or whether it's an anxiety or whatever it is like that's when you realize geez if it isn't for my health I actually can't afford to do all these other things that health is the actual common denominator and will cause the Jenga tower to absolutely be destroyed and never be able to be rebuilt again so I think that that kind of insight um, it's the obsessiveness that drives you either you could be a you know a health nut who's obsessed with just looking your best you could be a business person obsessed with building this empire or there's multiple other obsessions that are associated with either startup mentality entrepreneurship uh, or even high-performing corporate professionals but Charmin, what would you say to an entrepreneur who's actually got to be obsessive in certain periods and times to actually achieve things? Because it seems like this radical center of balance often doesn't get people to really do incredible, you know, influential things. Is it something that we can maybe pivot to biohacking when I take entrepreneurs through the process and I say, well, you can be obsessive about writing this book and, you know, burning the midnight oil, but we've got these data points. We've got these things that we can look at to say, you can do this for a period but there has to be a period of recovery. Call it three months, call it six months, because surely great things are done by obsessive people and um, you know these significant passions. Yeah, I mean, nowadays when you look at sports science in particular and the way in which you have, I mean, you mentioned ice baths, uh, recovery, nutrition. As an athlete, you are going to perform at your best for certain periods or you, know, you need to build up, then the tournament, then there's a bit of calm. And I think that that's ultimately taking that analogy and to your point about data points, plugging that in. Like if you don't have an innate obsession around something, I don't think you have the ability to achieve that success. And I think you also need that obsession to be the leader, to show people like you are like in the trenches with them. I think, I mean, I'd love to know your views on this because I think that it does sound a little bit like uh, I have a problem. <laughs> but no. um, but I think that, I think that to your point, there is so much to do with like being in the moment, being obsessed, and then having a little bit of time out, having those holidays. Because I found like in those early days, the only time you could ever take a break by having a small team and having minimal resources was the December period. And to run an entire year on fumes is not healthy. And I think taking more mini breaks as your team grows, taking your calculated step back and your kind of um, your your metaphorical ice bath or your metaf- metaphorical kind of recovery nutrition time. I think those those things are all important. Trying to organise my thoughts. Um, 
I don't think, I strongly disbelieve that great things are achieved only through obsessive behavior. I do think that often that is the case, or sometimes that is the case, and certainly remarkable levels of output in a short period of time can produce extraordinary human creativity. But I think we can find overwhelming evidence that a consistent application of concerted effort over a long period of time can also result in greatness or great things. So I don't know that we have to be obsessed to... I also don't think that being obsessed is bad or obsessive is bad. Um, I think it depends on what motivates that, right? And I think that's where the crux of the matter is for me, is that we... The, the thing that is so different about now, today, versus any other time is the amount of people and things and achievements we can compare ourselves to. <laughs> Never before have we been able to compare ourselves to more stuff, more people, more realities, more experiences, more documentaries. Like, figuring out what's important to you and what actually matters to you and what your measures for success are and what's okay and enough and significant and important in your frame of reference is virtually impossible because almost every idea that you have is is benchmarked against some other person's you know the moment i see mike's book i'm thinking about my book in relation to mike's book rather than just my book my book and my journey and my thing and what i need to do and it's I was literally just looking at the size of your fucking book. Like that's how I was like, oh, mine must be bigger. Let's look at my book, Michael. <laughs> what this is best take on it. Um, but that's what we do. We we compare. We are we are the most prolific comparers in the history of human history. Sounds pretty good. Excellent sentence. Yeah. Um, just just humanity. <laughs> and um, that's that's what's murdering us that's what's killing us is that we they've never we, been more joneses to keep up with holy shit so many joneses yeah and blades of grass hi mate to thrive nation hope you're enjoying the podcast if you haven't already please rate and review the show as this helps me get this cutting edge health info into more people's minds and hearts also i'm building a radical health community on instagram and linkedin so i would so appreciate your support and send me a dm with any feedback or advice my handle is Steve Stabs. Thanks again, and now back to the show. So what I hear you saying is then we need to find that the value that we bring into this world, our acceptance in this world, that we totally loved and we that we enough. And then from there, we can then bring the value and our purpose and our calling. Because if we look at the numbers, people aren't valuing their health. I mean, we sit here, you guys are exercising, you're in pretty good shape, you looked after, but the average person out there, the data shows that 90% of people are really sick, they are not well. Mm. And these are metrics. And we look at people that are all exercised and toned and lean, and when I look under the hood, when I look at the data points, the bloods, the heart rate variability, the stress, these guys are sick. They've got an image of health, but they're not. They're burnt out. So their adrenals are burnt out. They're not sleeping that well. They need supplements to sleep. Their HRV, which is their heart rate variability, which is a sign of stress, is not good. So they give an indication of health, but they're not. So are you saying that we've got to look at it from a point of view of identity, self-love, who we are, and then set the relevant goals in terms of what we want to achieve and not compare them to others? Well, here's the problem, right? Like, if we were all up as obsessed as we are with achieving what other people have done, with achieving the best version of ourselves, again, if you'll forgive the cat poster um, expression, <laughs> um, but but if we can if we can mean that, right? The the most whole, most fulfilled, most healthy version I can manage with the time that I've got available to me. The dichotomy is that the people we go to, with people we rely on to help us through that are in systems that are dysfunctional in their own right. So if we look at the medical, the Western medical system, it's increasingly siloed, the incentives in that system. You know, my doctor's not really incentivized to make me better. He's incentivized to make sure I come back when I'm not. Um, if I go to a podiatrist, he's not going to talk about my crushed lung, right? He's going to, you know, maybe have some orthotics. Like, Thanks. Um, the, the, the problems of the system are also embedded in comparison. This, this pharmaceutical company needs to outperform that pharmaceutical company. The metrics are performance, and I'm a capitalist, right? So I'm very comfortable with that. But we have to recognize that those systems have bad actors and 
bad, um, sometimes bad incentives and sometimes bad ramifications as a result. The problem is that, I mean, here, here's, the, here's the, the loony thought. Is there a more important thing than being a whole healthy person? Is there anything that's harder to get an objective, scientifically supported opinion on, on how to achieve? Like, just look at nutrition as an example. Exactly. How many different opinions are there on nutrition? And I think we have the science to know this. We just, we don't have the will to share it. That's, that seems very broken. Also, it's very difficult to actually find what your own weaknesses are when you are stuck in a comparison cycle the whole time. Like, we, yes, we have the most amount of comparative data points than ever before, but we also have the most quick fixes at our fingertips than ever before. So quick fixes like Uber Eats, Mr. Delivery. Oh, I'm feeling shit. I'm feeling depressed. KFC. Oh, eat another carb. Have another Red Bull. Like, it just feels like we're going to continue just like forcing things into the machine just to keep it going, but we don't realize how close we are to impending death or mental death, you know? And I think that that's the problem that we exist in. Like, everything's instant gratification. There's nothing around the long-term consistency because like Mike said just now, you've got um, the perfect kind of solves is to do something consistently consistently over a longer period of time but we all want it now we want the botox we want the muscles we want the filter we want all of that stuff because we continue to look at ourselves we dislike what we see we then put up the artificial version that we want the world to see then we get the dopamine hits of the hearts and the likes and the shares and all that kind of stuff no, and then it's it not real again yeah. and then we just continue 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 and now we're obsessed with the metaverse can you imagine how much worse that's going to get then we end up like spending more so that our avatars look better so that we can hang out with zuckerberg in virtual facebook like it just continues to be this problem where we actually are going to destroy ourselves with our own narcissism Okay, so we've all got children here and we've now said we've got some serious problems. <laughs> we are, most of us are narcissistic. Well, we're narcissistic imposters, right? Like that's the absolute dichotomy. You've like put both extremes. Not good enough, but I want the world to think I'm good enough so that I can get the like recommendations that I am good enough so I can get short-term upside. We're all looking for the short-term upside, but sorry, I interrupted. Impostercistic. <laughs> the next book, working <laughs> title. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, let's look at the long-term way. We've all got kids. How do we train our kids in terms of perspective, in terms of how they think, their subconscious defaults? I mean, I'll give you an example. It's so simple. But my daughter was told to breathe incorrectly at school. She's six years old. And take a big, deep breath through your mouth. Lift, like this. Doesn't know how to breathe through her nose. Something so simple, so important to breathe in through your nose and out through your nose. It just calms your system down. It just regulates your sympathetic nervous system, which is your stress system. Something so simple that it's a deep default setting now so when I just say to her breathe she breathes correctly now that's just the perspective so we've got children with a, almost a clean slate not really because they're part of environments and cultures so they can't really have a clean slate where do we start so they're not narcissistic and they don't have the imposter syndrome so there is a hope for people that are listening out there to say hang on geez I don't want that on top in your journey because it looks like you've got to get burnt out and then you get success but you realize it's not success and then you've got brain fog and depression and then you've got to go on another journey and the pharmaceutical guys are out there and they're comparing themselves to other companies and I don't know if their motives are true or they're not. Should we alternate on this one? I'll, sure. I'll go first. So I think the I think the greatest gift that modern parents can give their children to start with because I think there are others but this is the, the major priority for me and I think should be the major priority for all of, all of us is is presence is when you're with them be with them just see them right like and and that means being disciplined around your devices uh, around them actually engaging them on what they're talking about answering those questions that are painful to answer but honestly, I believe that 10 minutes of engagement, proper engagement and presence in a day is more than most of us got as kids and more than most of them will get in this modern society. And I, I just think that that's, presence is a, is a gift. Um, but what does it do for them? First of all, it, it means that they know, they know that they are seen, that they are worth your under... And at that point in time in their lives, you are everything. You are God, you are the president, you are the teacher, you are, you are everything. At that point in time, you are the most important, they are the most important thing to you. Sure. They'll know that. And that, 
for for starters, I think is is one of the most important things we okay, can do. Okay, let me stop you there. Yes. You went through a really mental health, you know, just transition, really struggled. Did you feel that you weren't seen? I don't think I asked anybody for that help, but that that can be rooted in some of the stuff that happened in my formative years. My whole story is the story of what happened in my childhood. And those patterns will play out for the rest of our lives unless we understand. In fact, they'll play out even if we understand them, but at least we'll recognize them and we'll have strategies for those emotions and strategies for those outcomes, yeah. Brilliant, so see them, Shaman. I mean, I think Mike basically read my mind with his answer, but I think the greatest gift to parents is actually the children themselves because we get to see a world that is not polluted with all of our idiosyncrasies. And I think for me, like, you know, that's the one thing. My kids are small still, but they'll call me out if I'm on my phone and I'm not looking at them and really engaging. And I think that comes back to the presence. Also, there's actually for me nothing better than during my day, it's nighttime, it's bedtime, having to read Julia Donaldson and her rhyming couplets. I think that it's like Julia Donaldson for Love me Jules, yeah. is like the modern day Dr. Seuss. And there's just, there's so much joy in the, I mean, last night we were reading the Smeds and the Smooths. Listen, if you haven't read it, it's basically a red creature and a blue creature. So it's very much a social commentary around Europe, Brexit, the whole kind of um, split in cultures and conflict and everything. And it's about this one little red Smed and a blue smoo, and the grandparents telling that a smed cannot marry a smoo. And it's just, it's such a beautiful story that it teaches you that even if you look different, you can engage with one another. If you look, if you believe different things, you know, we should actually get along a lot better. And I think those are these really beautiful, poignant moments that you get from having children that they teach you so much. And I also think that with each generation, there's like a big bang theory of expansion and contraction. Like we're in a situation now where we're doing a lot of damage to the world. Hopefully the next generation will do a lot of uh, solving. Otherwise we'll just end up like the dinosaurs and uh, instead of an asteroid, we'll just carbon dioxide our way to death. We saying being present and seeing is so important for our kids. Why don't we do that with our colleagues, our close people, our close friends? We're not seen. People are distracted. We're not mindful. The amount of stimulation that we're receiving now in one day is the same stimulation that someone is receiving in their whole lifetime in the 1400s. It seems that we know what we do, some things for our kids, but we're not doing it to each other. We're not seeing one another. We're not present for one another. And are you? what I'm hearing you saying is that these are very, very important keys in terms of transformation, health, and wellness. I think there's even further to that. I think there's a huge middle management problem, not just in South Africa, but globally. Because to your point, senior people aren't present with mid-tier people. Mid-tier people aren't present with juniors. Like I remember how many questions I used to ask in my first job when I was just a lowly intern and being able to sponge off people around you. Like we do less and less of that. There's less networking. I remember when we met properly in the 2010s, Mike used to have this networking event called 27 Dinners. It was here in Joburg, it was in Cape Town, and it was a great opportunity to go out and just speak to people. And sure, there were drinks and it was social, but it was also like, these are the things I'm struggling with in my latest campaign. And we're all a bunch of arty marketing, advertising types, but it gave you a safe space of like-minded people. I think we've become so obsessed with quantity of followers, fans, and friends, inverted commas, that by actually reducing the size of our immediate circles to have really intimate relationships with people who get us and who can almost give us feedback on the stuff that we're going through, like that helps us from a community level. Like we've lost a lot of that community, we've lost a lot of that neighborhoodism, and it was almost like during the early stages of COVID where you, you, you learn to reintroduce yourself to the people next door. Hey, this is what we're doing, let's have a bry on the pavement. And I think that ultimately, if we don't take those lessons about rejuvenating community, we will just end up being a little sea of avatars floating through the metaverse, <laughs> not having real deep meaningfuls with anybody. So community, yeah, mentorship, seeing others. I can be super present and I can see you if the incentives are right. right? If I'm pitching some wealthy CMO, I'll be super present. How much are you um, being paid for this gig? I, that's why I'm so present. Sorry, but I shouldn't have chat off this. But it's, it's, it's being present when it's hard or when the immediate incentive is not there or, you know, characters, how you treat the weakest person in the room stuff. You know, that's... But I think the other thing that we can do for our kids, um, while you're on my favorite topic, is uh, let them be average. So what we do with our kids is we disengage from them when they're average, just hanging out at home, stuffing up, making a fort, and we celebrate when they do well. 
So what they learn is that if I do well, if I perform, if I'm top of my class, if I get an award at um, horse riding, then I'm loved. Then my parents notice me, they clap, they post photos on, on the internet. But if I'm just hanging about, that's not celebrated. That's not cool. That's, and w everybody thinks their child is special. Every child, every, every person thinks their child is remarkable. Most of our children are bang average, right? Like <laughs> bang, bang average. So let's, not your child, your child is remarkable. I met, I've met Steve's child. That, that works on a normal use. Wait for it. Um, but, but we need to celebrate their average because that's who they are and that's how they're going to show. And they're going to be fine. And they're going to find cool jobs and lovely people to spend their lives with or not. And, but, but if, they are, if we immediately teach them from day one that the only time that we recognize them is when they outperform other people, we're propagating the exact same cancer that we've been talking about the whole time here. We've got to celebrate their average. We've got to let them be shitty. Yeah, it's good. I think uh, Sean's got to go soon, so I just want to get oh, your view sorry. on uh, stress, how you deal with stress, the, just the pervasiveness of stress and, and what it's doing to society and you know, just any sort of hacks or ways you can help people who want to produce good work. You've produced a great book, you're well known, and, and yes, it's an identity that's come out of you because you really want to influence, but how do people deal with their stress according to Sean? Geez, such a big question as I mic drop out of here. Um, so for me, I think that it's about forcing yourself to have some kind of getaway. So is it travel? Is it exercise? Is it going to the movies? Is it reading a book? Like, I think for each person, stress is different. Like, mine manifests itself through uh, needing to exercise, needing to get on a bike or go box something or go have a swim and I think that ultimately it's about finding what is your thing because also as we get older the the coping mechanisms that worked in the past don't survive your growth like your brain becomes busier you struggle to sleep all these things like permeate into your lifestyle so sometimes those coping mechanisms need to change like you may have just gone to a spinning class but that may not work anymore so how can you mix those things up because as an inquisitive and curious person your exercise and your stress de-stress moments require a similar kind of avenue so for me it is it's like you know people always talk about finding their why and I'm, I'm a bit of a Simon Sinek cynic so for me it's like what is your what is your why when it comes to stress relief and exercise how is your book not authored by Simon Sinek cynic why is that <laughs> not your <laughs> be a great pseudonym yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. great uh, I think you got to go Sean now so I want to just release you thank you for your time well done on the book and I know that you uh, uh, are doing great things and uh, I'm, yeah, I'm grateful for an essay hero I know you we didn't get into biohacking but obviously you're an exercise fundi and you enjoy it and you you know you've looked after your health and, and your kids and that so thank you so much and thanks for coming on the Mate to show thank you so much thanks for telling everyone I'm a fundi at exercise yes <laughs> so let's go to you uh, stop forth and let's talk about how you deal with stress and then we'll move on to sleep but how do you cope with distress and obviously there's good stress you stress there's the upside of stress in terms of the belief regarding stress what are your sort of tactics or hacks or things that you put in place to help you deal with this modern day stress yes I've always loved stress I think I've always had a very healthy relationship with stress and I don't think that I get much done without an element of pressure that 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 is I think necessary for me to do my best work to be productive to be committed um, I need risk I need an element of if you don't act something bad could happen you know I need, I need that um and i respond to it and i think i enjoy it and i embrace it and i build in enough space in my life to recharge from that what i think is worth differentiating is stress and then anxiety where you are where you found yourself or find yourself in ruminating patterns of destructive thinking that are not motivating you to action rather they are detracting from your presence and your health and your capability to show up. So I, I, I won't talk about stress, but I'll talk a little bit about what I've learned about anxiety. And, and I think what I've learned about anxiety is what we don't do much is, is try and understand why we're anxious. 
Um, so what we typically do when we're anxious is we go, I didn't do something or I failed to do this or I, but that's come after something else. That's normally a symptom and not the cause. I think unpacking, and this is why I think therapy is such a powerful mechanism for doing this work, unpacking the reasons why we are distressed can be a hugely empowering because then you understand the drivers, then you understand the basics, you understand what are the, what are the needs that I have that aren't being met or are being met incorrectly or what, whatever it might be that are eliciting an emotional response that I have no control over um, and that I have a bad strategy for dealing with. And once you can kind of break it into those component parts, you can go, okay, well, if I can recognize that need with no judgment, and I can acknowledge that there are emotions associated to that. I can use tools like breathing, like meditation, like better sleep, what, or whatever it might be. Therapy, friendships, connection, honesty, um, uh, love and partnership to observe more clearly what those things are and then develop healthier strategies for them. Because I think what we try and do is we try and brand our needs as bad, like we like that thing that you need, that's bad. That's sinful. That's don't do that. Like that's, um, and you can't do that. Like you can't unneed a need. Um, what you need to do is kind of recognize it, understand it, understand the reasons for it, and then build a better uh, strategy for the emotional responses to it. I think I think it's really hard, but I think it's extraordinarily worthwhile. And I think it's no harder than the process that we would go through for understanding our customers' need building a strategy around it, building, you know, uh, trying to elicit an emotional response. Exactly what we do in business, trying to get people to transact with us is what we need to do with ourselves uh, in the same capacity and with the same conviction. So accept the emotion, no judgment there. Someone feels anxious, then help get someone to help you, a coach or a psychologist or someone to help you look at the sort of reasons why you're feeling anxious and then maybe look at that, that might change in terms of your beliefs change, you don't feel as anxious, or then put things in place once you feel that anxiety, because it seems like there's always a trigger, and then there's a behavior, and the reason that you then do the behavior is because there's a reward there. You know, people that ruminate think, oh, I'm ruminating, stop ruminating, but actually the, rum the, the reason you're ruminating is there's the reward there that you get, and that's the behavior. You feel better, you feel more in control as you're ruminating, trying to work out a plan, you know, what's going to happen because there's been a trigger there. Yeah, and it, and it is an insidious cycle. It's a really dangerous cycle because the tools that you need to be able to have the mental and cognitive capacity to do that, to think like that and to... Uh, break these things up into their constituent parts and observe them and take the time to think and meditate and connect with a therapist and connect with people you care about. All of those things that we know are so exercise, so good for us when we're in that state, are also the things that are hardest to do. That's, that's what's so horrible about uh, anxiety. So um, I, th I, think, I think a commitment to understanding the basic building blocks, and, and I really wish, you know, we could depend more on health care providers, givers, and the big organizations behind them to unite and share this information more deliberately and more openly like you do. Like just getting those basic building blocks right builds up our resource base mm -hmm. to be able to think more clearly, act more clearly, even if you are still in a bad space. And then to, from there, develop the tools to um, start to progress. But we allow ourselves to get into such an insidious, vicious cycle that it's really difficult to work out of that. Let's tell them about your own personal story. You can share the details that you want to or not in terms of your own transformation from your mental health, physical health. You're in looking like an incredible shape, lost a lot of weight. There's been a whole transformation. You know, you're in a totally different space from when we first met. Tell us about those details and how they can help someone listening out there. I think the accepted model of mental health in most, certainly in my social circles, and I think in most established Western uh, economies, is that uh, you have the tools available to you to fix and address your mental health issues, and generally they take the form of some sort of medication. So if you're struggling with sleep, there's tools to help you do that, and then you'll be able to sleep. Or if you're struggling with anxiety, there's tools to help you with that. And, and those are in 
those are powerful chemicals and, and powerful tools and, and I'm sure there's good science behind them and I'm sure a lot of work has been done to make sure that they are safe and but but I'm worried that that's presented as the only solution uh, and not uh, a part of a suite of solutions and depending on who you're speaking to in the um, the ecosystem of mental health practitioners the gravitation towards medication as a solution is going to be um, more favorable or not or more instinctive or not so um, we we are bred and 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 born to trust healthcare providers and we do intrinsically and so we go and see somebody based on the recommendation of someone else and that person will address the problem as best they know from their experience skill set and bearing in mind that they have incentives and um you know uh, uh patterns in their thinking they're not perfect they're not robots they're not ais um but but i'm worried that for 22 years until I met you, not a single one of those people said to me, let, let's, let, let's see how you're sleeping. Let, let's think about how you're sleeping. Let's just start there. Right? I'm like, I'm sleeping fine. Thanks. You know, I go to bed at a reasonable hour and I get up at a reasonable hour. Um, and then, you know, kind of talk to me a little bit about, like, what does your alcohol intake look like? And when do you drink? Um, what, what tends to happen when you drink or what tends to happen that makes you drink? Just little questions that, that ask us to think a little deeper about the patterns in our existence that are very ingrained, but, but maybe not constructive. And then go from there, okay, cool, well, if we start to unravel some of those things, and then we couple that with a therapeutic exercise, with other interventions, maybe with a bit of medical assistance, you know, chemical assistance, these are the things that might happen. That hadn't happened until then. Um, and I think that's pretty much 95% of the population's story. Um, and that's, that's, I think, what I've started to unbelieve or disbelieve is that that is the mode of solving this problem because it just the evidence is overwhelming that it's not really helping people. It's just getting them deeper into a dependency cycle. Um, and I think there are a multitude of other tools available that are very powerful and very um, uh, uh, instructive, but are often branded as fringe or um, not alternative. I think it's unhelpful. I mean, if you look at what Wim Hof has done in terms of breath work and cold exposure, that's really powerful stuff regardless of what your opinions on you know, typical Western medicine are. But um, again, it, it tends, it tends I, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist here, Steve, but I'm going to, and forgive me, um, it, it doesn't serve the best interests of the most powerful healthcare providers in the world to have people fixing their anxiety with breath work. That one example, you know. Um, and I just think that, that there's, there's work to be done there. I think that 15 years from now, we'll look back at, at, maybe 50 years from now, I think it's going to take a while to unwind this, but we'll look back at this period and go, wow, we, we got a lot of that wrong. And we did a lot of people a disservice. And even with the best intentions, sometimes we caused a lot of pain. Um, and I think I think there's work to be done there. Brilliant. Well, Mates to Thrive wants to inspire and empower people to a life of thriving. We want to address these and give people other options. And it's, you know, I spoke at Absit today. I said, listen, we don't want to vilify medicines. Medicines have their role. They've got their unique uh, area of use, and it's important. It's correct use. Let's take antibiotics. Save millions of lives. But the incorrect use of antibiotics is now destroying people's health and causing a lot of sickness and disease and death. So it's not non-use, it's correct use. But what would you say to Mates Ithra and myself, Steve, with regards to getting this message out of there are other available options. They can work together. They can be collaborative and not necessarily competitive. You know, if we have to look at Mates Ithra in 10 years' time, we've got health coaches, consultants, myself. We do a lot of root causes, like you said, Ask these questions, look at your labs, your genetics, your sleep, your nutrition, your exercise, your community, which is, was a game changer for yourself and probably for Shaman as well. These are important factors to our wholeness and our health. How would you direct me in terms of getting the message out there and not only getting it out there because that could be inspiration. A lot of people have the knowledge, but they don't have the tools to consistently put into place these things that result in wholeness and health. 
So I'm, I'm a communicator by trade, and the DNA of communication is words. It's language, right? And I think language is important. And we, you've mentioned two, we've spoken about two concepts here, which, depending on who you speak to, can have very different um, meanings. The first one is medicine. So what's medicine, right? So I can't help but think of the old Reader's Digest. Do you remember those books that all of our parents had? I don't know how they magically got them. But yeah, they, and there was a section, laughter is the best medicine, right? Like in that you said these great jokes and that would be my fuel for a week, you know, my, my social capital for a week. But, but laughter is medicine. We know that. We actually know that laughter is medicine. We know that meditation is medicine. We know that um, love and connection with our children is, is medicine. We know that flipping pets can be medicine. We also know that um, Viagra is medicine. We know that aspirin is medicine. We know that antibiotics are medicine. These are all medicines. They're all tools that can help us get better and barring maybe one or two that I've mentioned on, on, on the fringe, are, have, have deep-seated deep scientific efficacy, right? Like have been proven to work beyond a shadow of a doubt. Then there are chemicals, right? And um, again, uh, aspirin is a, is, a, well, is a chemical compound. Um, most um, drugs... I mean, in the pharmaceutical, most pharmaceuticals are chemical, but alcohol's also a chemical. And um, that's worth thinking about. Is that a constructive or a destructive chemical? Um, how is that helping or not helping? And I still, by the way, drink uh, and enjoy it and often. But again, it's difficult to make poor decisions about alcohol if you like yourself. You know, I'm going to say that over and over again because it, it's helping me articulate, I think, where I'm at on this. Um, I think there's a lot of work to be done to help people recalibrate their definition of medicine. And I think you're doing that without necessarily saying it in that many words. Um, but, but that's, I think, what needs to be challenged. Is, is the, the, it's not true that the only place I can get medicine is at the counter it clicks off a script. There, there are many medicines available to me, and that's one of them, and it's super powerful, and, and, and I have nothing against it. But um, it needs to be considered as part of a broader ecosystem of health and wellness. And that's literally within the last year of my life that I started believing that. So I'm probably saying it incorrectly, and I'm probably underselling uh, the benefits, but um, the evidence is in how I feel. So, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, give us your last message of hope. People are listening out. They're stressed. You know, they're battling with their sleep. We've come to the end of the show. You know, they've tried so many things. You know, how can you direct them to say, okay, you know what? There's always hope. There is a way forward. I've tried certain things. I was in a place. Now I'm in a far better place. My health, my wholeness, I'm more present. You know, I think you said for 22 years, you didn't know there were other options. I mean, that's a huge statement to make. And many people are probably living under that sort of veil. What can you say to them? Yeah, I don't think it's ever too late. Um, no matter how deep in this you're feeling, no matter how uh, disempowered um, you're feeling, there are always options and there are always people that can help you and there are always connections to be made. I'm reading a book at the moment called Lost Connections, which if you're okay with it, I'd love to um, punt, but um, a really incisive and informative look at anxiety and depression and and what really causes those conditions, and we've spoken about some of it here, and what really helps them. And some of it is medicine, but some of it is other things. And um, I, I had an interesting conversation with a therapist the other day who, who said to me that what medicine should do, and specifically through the lens of health, um, is it should reconnect you with parts of yourself authentic parts of yourself that you've lost to trauma. That's what it should do. If it's not doing that, then you're not healing. Um, and that, and that, you know, that might be the, the parting thought that would be, I think, most beneficial for people to think about. 
Brilliant. Thanks, Mike. Start forth. If those Thanks want to, to listen you. to Mike's testimonials on the website, madetothrive.co.za, he's part of the Made to Thrive journey and part of my story and learned a hell of a lot from you already. He's been incredible in our journey. So thank you. I declare favor and blessing over you that you would thrive, that you would go from strength to strength, that you would continue to articulate and communicate your journey and also the strategies and plans that people can adopt in terms of improving and transforming their lives. Amazing. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Made to Thrive show. New episodes are released weekly and are published exclusively on the Made to Thrive podcast link. If you're interested in receiving more thriving insights as well as receiving other exclusive member benefits, visit madetothrive.co.za forward slash subscribe. This podcast is for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they have and they should seek the assistance of healthcare professionals for any such conditions.